0: Our Old Covenant reading this evening is from Ezekiel, Prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 22 to 33. The Word of the Lord. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land. That I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain, and make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree, and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways, and your deeds that were not good, you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt. The New Covenant reading comes from Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 60 to 71, also the word of the Lord. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. There is a
1: crisis of unbelief which is devastating the churches in North America today, the crisis does not show up in formal denials of Jesus Christ or even in denials of the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Rather, this crisis of faith is a crisis which denies the power and the sufficiency of God's Word, which ultimately reveals a lack of confidence in the power and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We conceive see this loss of confidence not simply out in liberal churches, but in many evangelical churches today, who though they state their belief in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, are busily engaged in all sorts of extra-biblical activities which they imagine are really going to build the church. I hope that you all realize that in this congregation, we are not trying to build the church at all. As we are taught by God in Psalm 127 unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Our plan A for the building up of God's church is to entrust ourselves entirely to the triune God, to his work, to his plan as we attend to the means of grace which he provides, the word of God read and preached, the right administration of the sacraments, and prayer. Beloved, that is our plan A, and we do not have a plan B. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, but the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe that our Heavenly Father loves us so much, but he sent his eternally begotten Son to rescue us from our sin and misery. We believe that Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And we believe that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, who sovereignly gives us new hearts that love God and who sanctifies us by leading us to know, love, and obey Jesus Christ. We dare not sacrifice or exchange these precious truths in order to receive the approval of those who don't actually like Jesus all that much. Let me say that again. We dare not exchange these precious truths out of an effort to win the approval of those who don't actually like Jesus Christ all that much. But that's where the temptation lies. Many people will tell us how they would like the church better if we would simply do and believe things other than what the Lord has called us to do and to believe. Indeed, those who don't love Jesus... When they walk away from the church, will rarely, in fact, I've never heard anyone say this, they'll rarely say, but the reason why I'm leaving the church is because I don't like God that much. Rather, what they'll say is, if the church had only done this or that instead, if they'd only been more loving toward me, that is why I am leaving. But we have nothing to offer other than the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we dare not exchange the cistern of living water for broken cisterns that can hold no water. This means that fallen men, apart from the grace of God, are going to reject the message and they are going to say negative things about us who bring the message of God to them. Tonight's passage reminds us but it has always been this way. We begin with the fact that Jesus faced sharp opposition from the crowds. As we consider why they found Jesus so offensive, it might be helpful for us to back up just one verse and look at verse 59 together. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The fact that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue is significant for us, particularly if we remember Jesus' ordinary pattern of teaching in the synagogues. He taught the congregation by expounding the Old Testament scriptures. For example, consider the account of Jesus teaching at the synagogue in Nazareth. We read, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, He has set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He wasn't just teaching on any random topic. He was teaching about himself and the kingdom of God from the scriptures that were being read as part of the ordinary synagogue worship. Although we can't know for sure what the scripture readings were in John chapter 6, as Jesus taught in the synagogue at Capernaum, it is at least likely that they included the portion of Exodus that speaks of God giving manna in the wilderness to his people And perhaps Isaiah 54, that speaks of the time in the New Covenant when all the Lord's people would be taught by God. But even if these weren't the main passages that were read, we do know that Jesus was expounding and applying the Old Testament scriptures. So what was the great offense? Jesus was telling the congregation that as they read Exodus they should be thinking about him. That he was the true bread of life, the true manna that comes down from heaven. That as they read Isaiah, they should be thinking about him, that he was the point of the Old Testament scriptures. At issue was not only what Jesus has said, but also that that what he said was put forward as the true meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. He spoke to them as one with authority. It is the God and Christ-centered nature of our Lord's teaching that the crowds found so deeply offensive. They did then. People still do today. Look at verse 60 with me. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now Christ's teaching was not hard in the sense that it was difficult to understand. It was hard in the sense that the majority of his hearers found it deeply offensive and they stumbled over it. The three key things that they found offensive were, first, that the Bible was about Jesus. That is still the case today. Many people want the Bible to be about them. The Bible is a word for us, but beloved, it is not about us. It is about Jesus. Second, they were offended that we are utterly dependent upon Jesus for our spiritual lives. We are not only dependent upon his person, we are dependent upon Christ dying in our place. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And third, they were offended that we are utterly dependent upon the sovereign work of God in order to believe in Jesus and therefore receive forgiveness of our sins and eternal life in him. As Christians, we joyfully celebrate the fact that we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We joyfully sing with Augustus top lady, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. But the very thing that we celebrate is found deeply offensive by those who do not know Jesus Christ and who do not love them, do not love him. Are you saying that I can't do anything myself? that I am that worthless of myself, that I am completely dead in my sins. Yes, that is precisely what God tells us through his holy word. Yet astonishingly, our Savior does does wash us and he makes us whiter than snow. Beloved, I hope that thrills your soul. Jesus Christ, your all-sufficient Savior, has washed you entirely clean and made you completely upright in the courtroom of his father. Don't you rejoice that Almighty God has done everything, not most of it, but everything, to fully save you and to make you a joint heir with Christ? That is the very thing that the Jews in this passage and unbelievers throughout history hate about the gospel. By the way, if you talk to to any preacher, they'll tell you this. People actually are not deeply offended when you apply the law to their lives. The thing that people get most offended about is when you tell them that they can't do anything to be saved. And Jesus has paid it all. Unbelievers hate that truth because they want autonomy, that is to be a law unto themselves, and they want to take credit for whatever progress they might make. The precious truth that you and I love are the same truths that unbelievers will hate. The question is, is the crowd is grumbling with Jesus, starting to move away from Jesus. What will Jesus do as a response? Jesus asks, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. See, Jesus doubles down on the need for the Holy Spirit to change their hearts in order for them to believe. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't say, no, you're misunderstanding me. I I was just trying to make a point with some hyperbole. No, he he emphasizes the very thing that's offending them. Please note that the word flesh in verse 63 is not referring to the flesh of Jesus. That's important to realize. When he says the flesh profits you nothing, he's not saying my physical body doesn't profit you. It, that, that word refers to our sinful nature. Jesus is looking at everyone and saying, Your sinful nature will accomplish nothing worthy of the kingdom of God. It must come entirely by God's sovereign grace into your life. Indeed, this whole discourse has been developing the glorious truth that the word became flesh to give his life for the life of the world. And Jesus has been insisting that his flesh is therefore true food and provides eternal life to those who believe. See, Jesus is not talking here about his flesh but about our fallen human natures. He is ruling out all self-help religion, all cooperative religion where God does his part and you and I do ours. Jesus is ruling out any notion that if we do our part, that God will do his. He is saying that fallen human beings are entirely dependent upon God's mercy and grace that comes to us in his own person or as we would say, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when the crowd stumbles over our Lord's claims about himself, Jesus doesn't back off. Instead, he asks, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, do you understand what Jesus is claiming with those words? He's actually claiming two things. First, he's making a claim with reference to the book of Daniel when it talks about the glorious ascension of the Son of Man where he's going to be enthroned in power. But he's actually claiming something even stronger than from the vision of Daniel. Which is really remarkable because in Daniel, the Son of Man is given all authority. But Jesus says to where he was before. This isn't new to Jesus. Jesus is claiming his pre-existence. This very claim of the Son of Man ascending to where he was before is a claim to divinity. He is the eternal God. Well, let me give you just two verses from Daniel 7 to remind you of the force of what Jesus is claiming in the first half of this claim. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus quite simply is saying, That's me. Hey, I am the one from Daniel's vision. Just as you should see me in Exodus and Isaiah, you should definitely see me in this vision. That is me. I am the one to whom you will ultimately give account. But if that were not enough, our Lord's question to the crowd claims something even more remarkable. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Do you see this point that I've already made? The fact that he's saying ascend to where he was before is a claim that he was already on the throne of heaven. Now, if you're following us in our Sunday school class, he wasn't on the throne of heaven as a man, but he's always been on the throne of heaven as God the Son. This is a claim to his preexistent and eternal deity. Not many in the crowd, even amongst those who previously determined they would treat Jesus as their esteemed teacher, they frankly cannot stomach these truths. And so they walk away. That is one of the things that truth, the truth of God does. Even when preached from the lips of Jesus, the truth of God brings division. Now it pains us, and it should pain us, to see people walking away. But unless we are giving people something to either embrace or to reject, we are not preaching the gospel. The true gospel unites the people of God into a true family, but it also divides the people of God from those who hate the claims of Christ. Beloved, that's really just how it is. Throughout church history, there have always been people that have tried to cover that over as though we should just be able to get along with all our unbelieving neighbors. And you can have unbelieving friends, and they can be great neighbors. But on this particular point, the truth of God will divide us from them. This was true 2,000 years ago. It is true today. And it will be true until Christ comes again for his people. So we come to the end of John chapter 6, We are approaching the end of perhaps a year of Jesus ministering in Galilee, and it looks like his ministry isn't bearing all that much fruit. Indeed, I suspect that many in the church growth business would label the results of Christ's ministry as nothing short of a failure. But how does Jesus, our Lord and Savior, respond to all these people going away? Look at verses 64 and 65 with me. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Jesus is making clear that he is entirely unsurprised by the opposition that he faced. Jesus stands on the full truth of the gospel even when people hate it. Our Lord is a wonderful, indeed a perfect example of what Paul would later command Timothy and by extension all pastors, that whether it is in season or out of season, we are to preach the gospel. Our job is to proclaim God's truth. Our job is not to gather crowds. Now, Jesus was not callous. I trust you all realize that. Jesus would later weep over Jerusalem as he enters the city while they're rejecting him. Right? Jesus was by no means callous. I'm sure, but it broke his heart to see the crowds rejecting him and walking away. But what Jesus would not do is change the message to make people more comfortable on their way to hell. And that's the temptation. If you give people anything other than the true Jesus, you are not presenting them with the way, the truth, and the life. We must, like Jesus, tell people the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So Jesus says once again, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Let me connect this to the question Jesus asked back in verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Um, I want to suggest that this question gives us part of our Lord's response to the unbelief of the crowd within the redemptive plan of God. Jesus looked forward just as we look back to the time when Jesus Christ would ascend to the throne of the universe from which he, along with the Father, would pour out the Holy Spirit upon his church. This means that our dependence upon Jesus and our dependence upon the Holy Spirit are not two radically separate things. Rather, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is connected to Christ's triumphant death, resurrection, and ascension. The way that the Holy Spirit gives us new life is by causing us to understand and to embrace Jesus Christ as our very own Lord and Savior, just as he is proclaimed in the gospel. Look at verses 66 and 67 with me. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Those are really sad words when you think about it. These people had seen and heard Jesus. there's Jesus turning to his closest inner circle of disciples and saying, what about you? You too? Instead of letting up, Jesus presses the truths that he was preaching to the crowd upon his own disciples, and he was calling themselves to commit to these truths and therefore to commit to him. He asked them quite directly, do you want to go away too? Verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? This is one of those places where I wish I could have seen Peter's face and heard his tone of voice as he uttered these words. I don't think Jesus is hearing Peter say, Oh, Lord, we never leave you. It is great to be around you all the time. Peter himself understood how challenging what Jesus was saying actually was. He's not saying, Lord, following you is a piece of cake. After all, Peter kept misunderstanding our Lord's teaching, and he also regularly had his own sins exposed by being around Jesus. Many people will cling to their sins and therefore distance themselves from Jesus. Many people will cling to their sins and therefore distance themselves from the word of God. But by God's grace, Peter had come to believe and to know that eternal life was to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. And therefore, although it was painful for him to have his sins exposed, he says, I'm not going to let you go. Well, we do know Peter's own weakness, and his own restoration as well, but at this moment he had the right thing to say. When you have come to saving faith in Jesus, you realize that no one else, and nothing else, will ever fully satisfy the longing of your heart. That is why Peter was committed to clinging to Jesus. Others were willing to treat Jesus like a prophet, or maybe even a new Moses. The crowd, after all, was ready to make Jesus their king. That's just a little earlier in the chapter. But they wanted Jesus on their own terms rather than His. The obvious question is, what about us? As your pastor, I say, "What about you? Do you want Jesus on your own terms, or do you embrace Jesus on his?" How true? How sadly true that is of so many people who even call themselves Christians today, but they want Jesus on their own terms. They wanted Jesus who would heal their sick and who would give them free food. To use modern terms, they were looking for health and wealth and they thought Jesus could provide it. But Jesus is not our butler, He is our Lord. The great scholar F.F. F. Bruce puts it beautifully. What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Like many of his Jerusalem followers earlier, many of his Galilean followers now failed to stand the test of unreserved allegiance. To be attracted by the signs is one thing. To appreciate and embrace their inward significance is another And it is only those who do the latter who can be counted as true disciples. People show up, people get excited, but if they don't embrace Jesus, they're not true disciples at all. So I have to ask, what about you? Do you have unreserved allegiance to Jesus, or are you holding back trying to negotiate your own special arrangement with the Lord, agreeing to follow him, but only on your own terms. Or are you like Peter? Beloved, Peter did not understand everything that the Lord was teaching. But by God's grace, Peter knew who Jesus was. He was more than a prophet like Moses. He was and is the Holy One of God. That is a great confession. But Jesus did not allow himself to be carried away by Peter's enthusiasm. Unlike at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus does not pronounce a benediction. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As we read at the end of John chapter 2, Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus makes clear that in the visible church, even amongst those who may appear to be his closest disciples, there are those who will deny and betray him. There are actually two great blessings that flow from that truth. That, that's such a horrible thing that Jesus knows these people are going to betray him, but that's actually a source of two great blessings to us. First of all, it was necessary for Jesus to be betrayed, to be turned over into the hands of simple men and be crucified in order for him to save us, his people from our sins. But second, it's actually something that prepares us for this very life. the fact that one of Jesus's original 12 Disciples, someone who walked with Jesus for three years, saw his miracles, heard his teaching would deny Jesus, prepares us for the day when someone we respect, a minister, an elder, a deacon, someone who's a famous teacher perhaps, walks away from the faith. We can say, yes, that happened even to Jesus. It should grieve us, but it should not surprise us to discover that some people even those set apart for ordained service, will ultimately deny the Savior and Lord. Think of the words the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You hear that? See, this wasn't a one-off with Jesus The Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian who's ever lived, is going around making disciples. There are people who are working with him. One of them is Demas. But Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica. It should grieve us, but it should not surprise us when people do that in the 21st century as well. And so the announcement that one of the 12 would betray Jesus presses on us an urgent and most important question. Are we living for this present age, or have we set our hearts upon the kingdom of God and the age to come? Or to use the language of this present chapter, what are you hungry for? Are you spending your life for the bread that perishes, Or are you coming to Jesus for the food that leads to eternal life? God's word teaches us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Beloved, Jesus speaks that word, and Jesus is that word. It is the apostle Peter who tells us how to respond to this truth in his first epistle. Peter writes, The flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Amen.